Chapter Three of The Jewel of Seven Stars. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Jewel of Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. Chapter Three, The Watchers. I was struck by the way the two young women looked at each other. I suppose I have been so much in the habit of weighing up in my own mind the personality of witnesses, and of forming judgment by their unconscious action and mode of bearing themselves, that the habit extends to my life outside as well as within the courthouse. At this moment of my life anything that interested Miss Trelawney interested me, and as she had been struck up by the newcomer, I instinctively weighed her up also. By comparison of the two, I seemed somehow to gain a new knowledge of Miss Trelawney. Certainly, the two women made a good contrast. Miss Trelawney was of fine figure, dark, straight-featured. She had marvelous eyes, great, wide-open, and as black and soft as velvet, with a mysterious depth. To look in them was like gazing at a black mirror, such as Dr. D. used in his wizard rites. I heard an old gentleman at the picnic, a great oriental traveler, describe the effect of her eyes as looking at night at the great distant lamps of a mosque through the open door. The eyebrows were typical, finely arched and rich in long curling hair. They seemed like the proper architectural environment of the deep, splendid eyes. Her hair was black also, but was as fine as silk. Generally, black hair is a type of animal strength, and seems as if some strong expression of the forces of a strong nature. But in this case there could be no such thought. There were refinement and high breeding, and though there was no suggestion of weakness, any sense of power there was was rather spiritual than animal. The whole harmony of her being seemed complete. Carriage, figure, hair, eyes, the mobile, full mouth, whose scarlet lips and white teeth seemed to light up the lower part of the face, as the eyes did the upper. The wide sweep of the jaw from chin to ear, the long, fine fingers, the hand which seemed to move from the wrist as though it had a sentience of its own. All these perfections went to make up a personality that dominated either by its grace, its sweetness, its beauty, or its charm. Nurse Kennedy, on the other hand, was rather under than over a woman's average height. She was firm and thick-set, with full limbs and broad, strong, capable hands. Her color was in the general effect that of an autumn leaf. The yellow-brown hair was thick and long, and the golden-brown eyes sparkled from the freckled sunburnt skin. Her rosy cheeks gave a general idea of rich brown. The red lips and white teeth did not alter the color scheme, but only emphasized it. She had a snub nose. There was no possible doubt about it but like such noses in general, it showed a nature generous, untiring, and full of good nature. Her broad white forehead, which even the freckles had spared, 
was full of forceful thought and reason. Dr. Winchester had on their journey from the hospital coached her in the necessary particulars, and without a word she took charge of the patient and set to work. Having examined the new-made bed and shaken the pillows, she spoke to the doctor, who gave instructions. Presently we all four, stepping together, lifted the unconscious man from the sofa. Early in the afternoon, when Sergeant Daw had returned, I called at my rooms in Germain Street and sent out such clothes, books, and papers as I should be likely to want within a few days. Then I went on to keep my legal engagements. The court sat late that day as an important case was ending. It was striking six as I drove in at the gate of the Kensington Palace Road. I found myself installed in a large room close to the sick chamber. That night we were not yet regularly organized for watching, so that the early part of the evening showed an unevenly balanced guard. Nurse Kennedy, who had been on duty all day, was lying down, as she had arranged to come on again by twelve o'clock. Dr. Winchester, who was dining in the house, remained in the room until dinner was announced, and went back at once when it was over. During dinner, Mrs. Grant remained in the room, and with her, Sergeant Daw, who wished to complete a minute examination which he had undertaken of everything in the room and near it. At nine o'clock, Miss Trelawney and I went in to relieve the doctor. She had lain down for a few hours in the afternoon so as to be refreshed for her work at night. She told me that she had determined that, for this night at least, she would sit up and watch. I did not try to dissuade her, for I knew that her mind was made up. Then and there I made up my mind that I would watch with her, unless, of course, I should see that she really did not wish it. I said nothing of my intentions for the present. We came in on tiptoe, so silently that the doctor, who was bending over the bed, did not hear us, and seemed a little startled when, suddenly looking up, he saw our eyes upon him. I felt that the mystery of the whole thing was getting on his nerves, as it had already got on the nerves of some others of us. He was, I fancied, a little annoyed with himself for having been so startled, and at once began to talk in a hurried manner as though to get over our idea of his embarrassment. I am really and absolutely at my wit's end to find any fit cause for this stupor. I have made again as accurate an examination as I know how, and I am satisfied that there is no injury to the brain, that is, no external injury. Indeed, all his vital organs seem unimpaired. I have given him, as you know, food several times, and it has manifestly done him good. His breathing is strong and regular, and his pulse is slower and stronger than it was this morning. I cannot find evidence of any known drug, and his unconsciousness does not resemble any of the many cases of hypnotic sleep which I saw in the Charcot Hospital in Paris. And as to these wounds, he laid his finger gently on the bandaged wrist which lay outside the coverlet as he spoke, I do not know what to make of them. 
They might have been made by a carding machine, but that supposition is untenable. It is within the bounds of possibility that they might have been made by a wild animal if it had taken care to sharpen its claws. That, too, is, I take it, impossible. By the way, have you any strange pets here in the house? Anything of an exceptional kind, such as a tiger-cat or anything out of the common? Miss Trelawney smiled a sad smile which made my heart ache as she made answer, Oh, no, father does not like animals about the house, unless they are dead and mummied. This was said with a touch of bitterness, or jealousy, I could hardly tell which. Even my poor kitten was only allowed in the house on sufferance, and though he is the dearest and best-conducted cat in the world, he is now on a sort of parole and is not allowed into this room. As she was speaking, a faint rattling of the door handle was heard. Instantly, Miss Trelawney's face brightened. She sprang up and went over to the door, saying as she went, "'There he is. That is my Silvio. He stands on his hind legs and rattles the door handle when he wants to come into a room.' She opened the door, speaking to the cat as though he were a baby. "'Did him want his mother? Come, then.' but he must stay with her. She lifted the cat and came back with him in her arms. He was certainly a magnificent animal, a chinchilla gray Persian with long silky hair, a really lordly animal with a haughty bearing despite his gentleness, and with great paws which spread out as he placed them on the ground. Whilst she was fondling him, he suddenly gave a wriggle like an eel and slipped out of her arms. He ran across the room and stood opposite a low table on which stood the mummy of an animal, and began to mew and snarl. Miss Trelawney was after him in an instant and lifted him in her arms, kicking and struggling and wriggling to get away, but not biting or scratching, for evidently he loved his beautiful mistress. He ceased to make a noise the moment he was in her arms. In a whisper, she admonished him. "'Oh, you naughty Silvio! You have broken your parole that Mother gave for you. Now say good-night to the gentleman and come away to Mother's room.' As she was speaking, she held out the cat's paw to me to shake. As I did so, I could not but admire its size and beauty. "'Why,' said I, his paw seems like a little boxing-glove full of claws. She smiled. So it ought to. Don't you notice that my Silvio has seven toes? See? She opened the paw, and surely enough there were seven separate claws, each of them sheathed in a delicate, fine, shell-like case. As I gently stroked the foot, the claws emerged, and one of them, accidentally, there was no anger now and the cat was purring, stuck into my hand. Instinctively I said, as I drew back, "'Why, his claws are like razors!' Dr. Winchester had come close to us and was bending over, looking at the cat's claws. As I spoke, he said in a quick, sharp way, "'Eh!' I could hear the quick intake of his breath. 
Whilst I was stroking the now quiescent cat, the doctor went to the table and tore off a piece of blotting paper from the writing pad and came back. He laid the paper on his palm and, with a simple pardon me to Miss Trelawney, placed the cat's paw on it and pressed it down with his other hand. The haughty cat seemed to resent somewhat the familiarity and tried to draw its foot away. This was plainly what the doctor wanted, for in the act the cat opened the sheaths of its claws and made several reefs in the soft paper. Then Miss Trelawney took her pet away. She returned in a couple of minutes. As she came in, she said, "'It is most odd about that mummy.' When Silvio came into the room first, indeed I took him in as a kitten to show to father, he went on just the same way. He jumped up on the table and tried to scratch and bite the mummy. That was what made father so angry and brought the decree of banishment on poor Silvio. Only his parole, given through me, kept him in the house. Whilst she had been gone, Dr. Winchester had taken the bandage from her father's wrist. The wound was now quite clear, as the separate cuts showed out in fierce red lines. The doctor folded the blotting paper across the line of punctures made by the cat's claws, and held it down close to the wound. As he did so, he looked up triumphantly and beckoned us over to him. The cuts in the paper corresponded with the wounds in the wrist. No explanation was needed, as he said, It would have been better if Master Silvio had not broken his parole. We were all silent for a little while. Suddenly Miss Trelawney said, But Silvio was not in here last night. Are you sure? Could you prove that if necessary? She hesitated before replying. "'I am certain of it, but I fear it would be difficult to prove. Silvio sleeps in a basket in my room. I certainly put him to bed last night. I remember distinctly laying his little blanket over him and tucking him in. This morning I took him out of the basket myself. I certainly never noticed him in there, though, of course, that would not mean much, for I was too concerned about poor father, and too much occupied with him to notice even Silvio. The doctor shook his head, as he said with a certain sadness, Well, at any rate, it is no use trying to prove anything now. Any cat in the world would have cleaned blood marks, did any exist, from his paws in a hundredth part of the time that has elapsed. Again we were all silent, and again the silence was broken by Miss Trelawney. But now that I think of it, it could not have been poor Silvio that injured father. My door was shut when I first heard the sound, and father's was shut when I listened at it. When I went in, the injury had been done, so that it must have been before Silvio could possibly have got in. This reasoning commended itself, especially to me as a barrister, for it was proof to satisfy a jury. It gave me a distinct pleasure to have Silvio acquitted of the crime, possibly because he was Miss Trelawney's cat and was loved by her. Happy cat! 
Silvio's mistress was manifestly pleased, as I said, "'Verdict! Not guilty!' Dr. Winchester, after a pause, observed, "'My apologies to Master Silvio on this occasion, but I am still puzzled to know why he is so keen against that mummy. Is he the same toward the other mummies in the house? There are, I suppose, a lot of them. I saw three in the hall as I came in.' "'There are lots of them,' she answered. "'I sometimes don't know whether I am in a private house or the British Museum. "'But Silvio never concerns himself about any of them except that particular one. "'I suppose it must be because it is of an animal, not a man or a woman.' "'Perhaps it is of a cat,' said the doctor as he started up and went across the room to look at the mummy more closely. "'Yes.' he went on. It is the mummy of a cat, and a very fine one, too. If it hadn't been a special favorite of some very special person, it would never have received so much honor. See? A painted case and obsidian eyes, just like a human mummy. It is an extraordinary thing, that knowledge of kind to kind. Here is a dead cat, that is all. It is perhaps four or five thousand years old, and another cat, of another breed, in what is practically another world, is ready to fly at it, just as it would if it were not dead. I should like to experiment a bit about that cat, if you don't mind, Miss Trelawney. She hesitated before replying, Of course, do anything you may think necessary or wise but I hope it will not be anything to hurt or worry my poor Silvio. The doctor smiled as he answered, Oh, Silvio would be all right. It is the other one that my sympathies would be reserved for. How do you mean? Master Silvio will do the attacking. The other one will do the suffering. Suffering? There was a note of pain in her voice. The doctor smiled more broadly. Oh, please make your mind easy as to that. The other won't suffer as we understand it, except perhaps in his structure and outfit. What on earth do you mean? Simply this, my dear young lady, that the antagonist will be a mummy cat like this one. There are, I take it, plenty of them to be had in Museum Street. I shall get one and place it here instead of that one. You won't think that a temporary exchange will violate your father's instructions, I hope. We shall then find out, to begin with, whether Silvio objects to all mummy cats or only to this one in particular. I don't know, she said doubtfully. Father's instructions seem very uncompromising. Then, after a pause, she went on. But, of course, under the circumstances, anything that is to be ultimately for his good must be done. I suppose there can't be anything very particular about the mummy of a cat. Dr. Winchester said nothing. He sat rigid, with so grave a look on his face that his extra gravity passed on to me and in its enlightening perturbation I began to realize more than I had yet done the strangeness of the case in which I was now so deeply concerned. 
When once this thought had begun, there was no end to it. Indeed, it grew, and blossomed, and reproduced itself in a thousand different ways. The room and all in it gave grounds for strange thoughts. There were so many ancient relics that unconsciously one was taken back to strange lands and strange times. There were so many mummies, or mummy objects, round which there seemed to cling forever the penetrating odors of bitumen, and spices, and gums, nard and circassia's balmy smells, that one was unable to forget the past. Of course, there was but little light in the room, and that carefully shaded, so that there was no glare anywhere. None of that direct light which can manifest itself as a power or an entity, and so make for companionship. The room was a large one, and lofty in proportion to its size. In its vastness was place for a multitude of things not often found in a bedchamber. In far corners of the room were shadows of uncanny shape. More than once, as I thought, the multitudinous presence of the dead and the past took such hold on me that I caught myself looking round fearfully as though some strange personality or influence was present. Even the manifest presence of Dr. Winchester and Miss Trelawney could not altogether comfort or satisfy me at such moments. It was with a distinct sense of relief that I saw a new personality in the room in the shape of Nurse Kennedy. There was no doubt that that business-like, self-reliant, capable young woman added an element of security to such wild imaginings as my own. She had a quality of common sense that seemed to pervade everything around her as though it were some kind of emanation. Up to that moment I had been building fancies around the sick man, so that finally all about him, including myself, had become involved in them, or enmeshed, or saturated, or... But now that she had come, he relapsed into his proper perspective as a patient. The room was a sick room, and the shadows lost their fearsome quality. The only thing which it could not altogether abrogate was the strange Egyptian smell. You may put a mummy in a glass case and hermetically seal it so that no corroding air can get within, but all the same it will exhale its odor. One might think that four or five thousand years would exhaust the olfactory qualities of anything, but experience teaches us that these smells remain and that their secrets are unknown to us. Today they are as much mysteries as they were when the embalmers put the body in the bath of natron. All at once I sat up. I had become lost in an absorbing reverie. The Egyptian smell had seemed to get on my nerves, on my memory, on my very will. At that moment I had a thought which was like an inspiration. If I was influenced in such a manner by the smell, might it not be that the sick man, who lived half his life or more in the atmosphere, had gradually and by slow but sure process taken into his system something which had permeated him to such degree that it had a new power derived from quantity or strength or— 
I was becoming lost again in a reverie. This would not do. I must take such precaution that I could remain awake or free from such entrancing thought. I had had but half a night's sleep last night, and this night I must remain awake. Without stating my intention, for I feared that I might add to the trouble and uneasiness of Miss Trelawney, I went downstairs and out of the house. I soon found a chemist's shop, and came away with a respirator. When I got back it was ten o'clock. The doctor was going for the night. The nurse came with him to the door of the sick room, taking her last instructions. Miss Trelawney sat still beside the bed. Sergeant Daw, who had entered as the doctor went out, was some little distance off. When Nurse Kennedy joined us, we arranged that she should sit up till two o'clock when Miss Trelawney would relieve her. Thus, in accordance with Mr. Trelawney's instructions, there would always be a man and a woman in the room, and each one of us would overlap, so that at no time would a new set of watchers come on duty without someone to tell of what, if anything, had occurred. I lay down on a sofa in my own room, having arranged that one of the servants should call me a little before twelve. In a few moments I was asleep. When I was waked, it took me several seconds to get back my thoughts so as to recognize my own identity and surroundings. The short sleep had, however, done me good, and I could look on things around me in a more practical light than I had been able to do earlier in the evening. I bathed my face, and thus refreshed went into the sick room. I moved very softly. The nurse was sitting by the bed, quiet and alert. The detective sat in an armchair across the room in deep shadow. He did not move when I crossed until I got close to him, when he said in a dull whisper, "'It is all right.' I have not been asleep. An unnecessary thing to say, I thought. It always is, unless it be untrue in spirit. When I told him that his watch was over, that he might go to bed till I should call him at six o'clock, he seemed relieved and went with alacrity. At the door he turned, and coming back to me, said in a whisper, I sleep lightly, and I shall have my pistols with me. I won't feel so heavy-handed when I get out of this mummy smell. He, too, then, had shared my experience of drowsiness. I asked the nurse if she wanted anything. I noticed that she had a vinaigrette in her lap. Doubtless she, too, had felt some of the influence which had so affected me. She said that she had all she required, but that if she should want anything she would at once let me know. I wished to keep her away from noticing my respirator, so I went to the chair in the shadow where her back was toward me. Here I quietly put it on and made myself comfortable. For what seemed a long time I sat and thought and thought. It was a wild medley of thoughts, as might have been expected from the experiences of the previous day and night. Again I found myself thinking of the Egyptian smell and I remember that I felt a delicious satisfaction that I did not experience it as I had done. 
the respirator was doing its work. It must have been that the passing of this disturbing thought made for repose of mind, which is the corollary of bodily rest, for, though I really cannot remember being asleep or waking from it, I saw a vision, I dreamed a dream, I scarcely know which. I was still in the room, seated in the chair. I had on my respirator and knew that I breathed freely. The nurse sat in her chair with her back toward me. She sat quite still. The sick man lay as still as the dead. It was rather like the picture of a scene than the reality. All were still and silent, and the stillness and silence were continuous. Outside, in the distance, I could hear the sounds of a city, the occasional roll of wheels, the shout of a reveler, the faraway echo of whistles and the rumbling of trains. The light was very, very low. The reflection of it under the green-shaded lamp was a dim relief to the darkness rather than light. The green silk fringe of the lamp had merely the color of an emerald seen in the moonlight. The room, for all its darkness, was full of shadows. It seemed in my whirling thoughts as though all the real things had become shadows, shadows which moved, for they passed the dim outline of the high windows, shadows which had sentience. I even thought there was a sound, a faint sound as of the mew of a cat, the rustle of drapery and a metallic clink as of metal faintly touching metal. I sat as one entranced. At last I felt, as in nightmare, that this was sleep, and that in the passing of its portals all my will had gone. All at once my senses were full awake. A shriek rang in my ears. The room was filled suddenly with a blaze of light. There was the sound of pistol shots, one, two, and a haze of white smoke in the room. When my waking eyes regained their power, I could have shrieked with horror myself at what I saw before me. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline